may be seated. Open up your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 7 as we continue our series in Daniel. Let's ask the Lord to help us once again. Father, as we open up this word, we again ask for your help. We cannot do this alone. We need your spirit to teach us, to instruct us, to make your word shine bright in our hearts, to make the connections we need to see, to magnify the Lord Jesus in our hearts, to call sinners to repentance and to sanctify your people. Help us now, God, as we dive in. In your name, amen. We are in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most fascinating passages in the entire Bible. It's one that I would definitely put up as very significant. Understanding the contents of Daniel 7 will help you understand the things that follow and the things that are to come. And really, the second half of Daniel is all like that, and it begins with this wonderful chapter. Just to give a quick review where we left off last week... Last week, we saw that Daniel had visions or dreams during the night. It was an apocalyptic dream of four beasts rising from the sea. And we said that these four beasts represent four kingdoms, four world empires. It's the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 and 7, the dreams that these men have are the same. They're parallel, just told a little bit differently. And these four world empires, which at the time of Daniel's life were Babylon, the one he was living in, followed by Medo-Persian, Greece, and then Rome. God was telling Daniel the things that would happen in the future. And to cement in his heart the one constant truth that we've seen thus far in the book of Daniel, that there is one everlasting kingdom. And this is the kingdom of our God. Even though kingdoms come, kingdoms go. God is the one who raises up kings and tears down kings. He is the sovereign God. This has been the whole story of Daniel thus far. It's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. It's the lesson that Belshazzar should have learned. And it's a lesson that Cyrus learned. And Daniel is very perplexed about this dream. As we said, it's apocalyptic language, which is dramatic symbolism. I mean, when you dream about four beasts coming up out of a stormy sea, what else could that mean? Of course, that's not a literal interpretation. It means something different. And Daniel gets the interpretation in chapter 7. And these four beasts, like I said, are very scary looking, and they trouble Daniel greatly. But in verse 9, and we... We're going to cover verses 9 through 14 today, and we ended the sermon there last week, but I really want to go deeper in these verses. There's so much here. Daniel says in verse 9, as after he sees the four beasts, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Again, the symbolic apocalyptic language continues. As Daniel now looks 
where he looks over here and there's beasts coming out of the sea and he looks over here and there he finds himself in the throne room of God whom Daniel describes as being the ancient of days. We just sang that song earlier in the service. Ancient of days, this is where that comes from in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is the only chapter in the Bible to refer to God in this way, as the ancient of days. Of course, it refers to God the Father being eternal. God is the only eternal one. He is the one who comes before time itself. He is the ancient of days. That's really what that means, God's eternality. As Daniel looks on, he then describes God. He describes how God looks like in this vision. He says that the Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. Of course, this is symbolic of God's rule and reign. Here these beasts are ruling and reigning on earth, but who is on the throne in heaven? It is the Ancient of Days. Kings come and kings go, but there's one king that never abandons his throne, and that is God. And Daniel gives us here a description of how he sees this Ancient of Days, this Uh, of God, God the Father. He says that he has white clothes on and his hair is pure wool. Of course, white in the Bible is a symbolic of purity, of holiness. Here, Daniel is not telling us this is how God looks like because remember, the only part of the Godhead that we could ever feast our eyes on is the Lord Jesus. He is the God made um, visible. He is God incarnate. God the Father and God the Spirit are spirits. They possess no body, but only the Lord Jesus. But this is symbolism. He's symbolically describing the Lord. White clothes and pure wool. Pure white, which is holiness. No stain on him. For God is the only holy one, the righteous one, and the one in whom there is no sin or evil or any wrongdoing. This judge that sits on the throne is the righteous one, and he has never done wrong, and he rules righteously. But then Daniel says that his throne is interesting as well. The throne that the Ancient of Days sits on is a fiery, flaming throne. And the throne has wheels, and those wheels also are on fire. I mean, what a dream, right? What a dream that Daniel's having here. Fire in the Bible speaks of either purification or of judgment. These are the words that are described as fire in the Bible. And so we see God holy, but God also on his judgment seat. This is what Daniel sees. A sovereign and holy God who sits ready to judge and pour his wrath on these four beasts that are coming out of the sea. They're standing before a holy God facing the judgment day, and they will get what they deserve. This is what we will be seeing in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, the events that happened here are also described in the book of Revelation and other important biblical texts. Again, it's fascinating. Daniel is getting a glimpse of the future. Daniel's getting a glimpse of what happens to these Fierce beasts, these kingdoms, these evil rulers that come and destroy God's people on earth. What will be their end? And it's very similar to the book of Revelation. 
again and again and again. For example, even in Revelation chapter 1, how John describes the Lord Jesus. You remember John when he got the revelation? He's on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. And he turns around and he sees a vision, again, a vision, symbolic imagery, here of the risen Christ. And look how John describes the risen Christ in his vision. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Does that sound familiar? It's just like the Ancient of Days that Daniel saw with hair white like wool, pure wool and snow. And he looked at the eyes of the risen Christ, and he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Here's a fire coming into the picture here of judgment, of, of purification. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. His, in his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John, in his vision, is seeing a picture of the risen Jesus. And it sounds exactly like who? The Ancient of Days. Yes, Jesus is God. He is the eternal God of the universe. Don't let anyone ever deceive you into thinking otherwise. Again, symbolic language. But the Jewish reader would have understood the description here and relate it to Daniel chapter 7. Here, Jesus, we have the same pictures of holiness, righteousness, purity, symbolized by the white hair, and judgment, eyes of flaming fire. Back to Daniel 7. Look at verse 10. As Daniel's looking there and he sees the Ancient of Days and his holiness and is ready to judge, he sits on the throne. Look at, in verse 10, he says, A stream of fire issued and came out before him. That's judgment. And a thousand thousands served him. Daniel's not doing math. He's speaking symbolically. That's the way to say a whole lot of people. It's a whole lot of people. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Here, ah, we get a sense of where we are. This is the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, but it's a courtroom situation. The judge has entered the court. And when the judge enters the court, what do you do? All rise for the judge has entered. The judge sits down ready to judge. This is the scene that Daniel is getting. And the books are opened. The judge is getting ready to present his sentence based upon the evidence that he has seen. And you can know for certain this one thing. Justice will be served. Justice will be had because the Ancient of Days is a good judge. And a good judge always upholds the law. And that's what the Ancient of Days, the judge of all the universe, is about to do as the books are opened before him. But then again, in Revelation, we see a similar scene that John describes to us as he gets his vision of what will happen In Revelation chapter 20, tell me if this sounds familiar to what we just read. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, here's the great judgment day at the end of history. John says, then I saw a great white throne. Here's that symbol of purity. And him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, just like Daniel chapter 7. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we have in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 20, a scene, a picture of a future coming judgment day where Everybody, great and small, shall stand before their Creator and give an account on how they lived their life. And here's the thing. Good works can't take you into heaven, but bad works certainly can take you to hell. This is the verdict of the judge. And books were open. Every detail of your life, every thought you've ever thought, every deed you've ever done is recorded in heaven And is the evidence for the judge to sentence you rightly. The only way to escape the judgment of the ancient of days is to be in one of those books, which is called the book of life, which has been written since before time began as God the Father made a covenant with God the Son to go redeem these people and make them his bride. The only way To be saved from this judgment day is to be in this book of life, which means that you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sins, and trusted Him alone for salvation. Those are the only people who are written in that book. Everyone else will receive a fair trial. Everyone who's in that book receives grace. That's not fair. Everyone who's not in the book gets fairness. They get what they deserve. And what do we deserve as sinners? The wages of sin is death. And nobody escapes his judgment. Great and small stood before the throne. Death and Hades also gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. And the end of all this is what? The lake of fire. The second death. This sounds exactly what Daniel says in chapter 7. He sees the Ancient of Days sit down and the books are open. And now the beasts in that context are about to be judged according to what they had done. Let's make it very clear that the Ancient of Days, God, the judge of all the creation, should not be likened to a sweet and safe grandfatherly type of figure. He is not safe but a fiery and fair judge that will execute justice on all sinners. The Ancient of Days does not mess around. What a scene. And let me tell you something and make this very clear. There's probably a lot of places that you don't want to be in this world. But the last place that you ever want to find yourself in is defending yourself in the throne room of the Ancient of Days as the events and details of your life are open before him And he issues his judgment. You and I are incapable of defending ourselves before him. For there's only one sentence that we are due. 
only one sentence that we have earned, and that's to be cast into that lake of fire where we shall suffer and pay for our deeds forever. You and I need an advocate. We need somebody to step up on our behalf and defend us, to plead our case, to say that our sins have been taken care of, to say that somebody has written down our name in the book, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You either die in Christ and you will find yourself never finding condemnation, never standing before this God in this way, or you will find yourself rejecting Christ and his gospel where you will then find yourself in this throne room at the end of history having to account for all of your life. The choice is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. That he took our place on that cross. And that if you trust in him and believe in him fully, he is gracious and merciful and ready to forgive. But there is no other way to be saved. Your good works can't get you in. Your good works cannot get you in. You will stand before this judge And you will fear a holy God probably for the first time in your life. Fear him now. Trust him now. Repent now. And you will not have to face this dreadful condemnation. Back to Daniel 7. In verse 11, Daniel continues and says this. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked The beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here Daniel, he goes from the beast coming up out of the sea to the throne room of God where the Ancient of Days sits down. And then he comes over here and he hears something. And that little horn that was on that fourth beast that we talked about last week, this beast This horn is a man. He's speaking great blasphemous things. And he has the eyes of a man and he speaks words like a man. And Daniel hears him and is distracted. And he's listening to what this beast is saying. What this horn is saying. And as he looks, the beast on which this horn is, is killed. By who? The ancient of days. And his body is destroyed and is thrown and be burned with fire. Which is what? What we just read. It's just what we read in Revelation with the lake of fire and the judgment of the Ancient of Days. This, of course, little horn we said last week was Antichrist. Antichrist is a final end times ruler who will persecute the people of God and make war against God. He's just the last one in a long line of Antichrists that have come throughout history. Listen to last week's sermon if you want to know more about that. Here's Daniel watching. The judge sits down, he gives his sentence, and the beast which has ravaged war on the people of God is killed and judged. He finally gets what he deserves. Let this be an encouragement to you. Nobody gets away with anything. Sometimes we are very grieved over evil people getting away with the vilest of things. Let it be known that all give an account. Every evil deed will be brought to justice on this day. 
Nobody gets away with anything. You may have secret sins that nobody knows about. They will all be brought to light if you are not in Christ. Everything will be held accountable. God does not sweep sin underneath the rug. He does not ignore sin. He deals with it either in Christ for all who believe or in the lake of fire for those who don't. That is how it ends. Again, comfort to the people of God who have endured such suffering at the hands of beasts, at the hands of evil kingdoms and empires. But this beast is killed with fire. And we see this in Revelation again, 19.20. Look at that. Revelation 19.20. Remember, John also sees a beast. In Revelation 13, coming up out of the sea, very similar to Daniel 7. Instead of seeing four different beasts, he sees four beasts in one coming up out of the sea, in one one unit. This is all the world empires, all the world kingdoms coming against God as one. And what does John write? And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Goodbye, beast. No more. Look at Revelation 20. Verse 10, not only does the beast and the false prophet get what they deserve, but the devil, Satan, also gets judged. And the devil who had deceived them, Revelation 20.10, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan does not escape the wrath and justice of God. He who first appeared as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, deceiving and tempting Adam and Eve. He who has throughout time waged war, who is the reason for the, for the viciousness and the maliciousness stirring up and persecuting the people of God. He will also meet his final doom in this lake of fire as he stands before the Ancient of Days. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That's good news. The beast is no more. The devil who deceived them, the devil who empowered these beasts is no more. He has an expiration in this life. What an encouragement to Daniel. Although he's frightened, that's what he's seeing. But that's not the end of the story. Because look at verse 13, back to Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions. So now he's going back to his dream, but this is not necessarily immediately following chronologically. This is how Daniel saw it, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it's chronologically the same sequence of events. For what we just read happens at the very end of time. But look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Fascinating. Fascinating. And the first thing we must ask is, who is this son of man? And when do these things take place? To understand this passage, verses 13 and 14, we have to understand who is this And when does it happen? 
So as Daniel, his mind, he's going back and forth from throne room to the sea, to throne room, to sea. And as he's watching, he sees with the clouds of heaven, somebody come to heaven. And he comes and enters the throne room where the Ancient of Days is seated to be presented before him. Amazing. Who is this son of man? The phrase son of man literally means, this is a really complicated one. You ready for this? Human being. Son of man. Man, Adam. Son of Adam. Who are human beings? We're sons of Adam. Children of Adam. What human being can enter heaven and stand before the ancient of days and not be consumed with his glory? Well, this is no ordinary human being. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man. It has to be somebody who's divine. Yes, the Son of Man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel looks and he doesn't see angels, beasts stand before the Ancient of Days. He sees a person. He looks at him as somebody who looks human. This is Jesus, who is the God-man, incarnated into human flesh. In fact, if you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus' favorite title of himself, the way he most often referred to himself, is Son of Man. Now, you would think Son of God would be number one on the list. No, Son of Man was the most frequent and popular title that Jesus used of himself. It means... Two things. Number one, Jesus is son of God, which means he's divine. He's son of man. He's human. He's the God-man. He's God in human flesh. But more than that, son of man became known as a messianic title in the Old Testament. Son of man. When Jesus is using the word and title son of man of himself in the Gospels, he is basically saying to them, I am the Messiah. I am the one who's going to stand before the Ancient of Days one day. Not just speaking of his two natures, divine and human, yet without sin, but that he is the Messiah. But look at this, because oftentimes people look at this passage and they say that it's about the second coming. However, notice some important things about this. Jesus doesn't come from heaven, from the ancient of days, in the clouds. He's going in the clouds, where? To the ancient of days. He goes to heaven, to this throne room. This is not about the second coming. This does not happen at the second coming, because the second coming is about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. This is about Jesus coming from the earth to heaven. And so... If you know your Bibles, when does that happen? When does Jesus go from earth to heaven? The ascension. Daniel 7 captures for us a prophecy and a glimpse of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 1 and see if we see some similarities to help us understand Daniel chapter 7. 
If you remember, Jesus, after he resurrects from the dead, he spends 40 days with the disciples. After 40 days, he ascends to heaven. And Acts chapter 1 gives us this account. In verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, his disciples, he was lifted up in a what? Cloud. Very significant. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so here we go, the same similarities. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 comes with clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, to be presented before him. This happens at the ascension of Jesus Christ. Great. Is that it? No, it's not it. Like, great. Okay, great. We figured that part out. There is so much more to it. I probably have five sermons worth right here, okay? We've got to keep moving. Um, what happens when he gets there? Great, he goes to heaven. We all know that. But what happens when he enters heaven to stand before the Ancient of Days? And this is what Daniel 7.13 tells us. When he stands there before the Ancient of Days, and to him, which is the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He stands before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and he is rewarded for his faithfulness. He receives the fruit of all of his labors. And what is the reward that he receives? He receives a kingdom which is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that one of David's sons would sit on his throne forever, and that his kingdom will never pass away, never fade away, and shall never be destroyed. But more than just a kingdom, he has a people. He has a people for whom he died for. He has a people for which are now his. He now rules them as a king like David, like Adam should have done over creation. Adam was promised all these things, same things as well, but Adam failed. He broke and was kicked out. He was not receiving the rewards that God promised him. Have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. He blew it. But Jesus, after having faithfully lived a sinless life, doing everything that God the Father sent him to do, dies, resurrects, ascends to heaven and stands before him to receive the fruit of his labors. This is what's happening in Daniel 7. This is what's happening in Acts chapter 1. Christ receives the kingdom at the ascension. This is why Jesus tells the disciples right before he leaves, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples. Go expand this kingdom because I'm going to be ruling and reigning from heaven. 
Go and spread my gospel. Go to the uttermost parts of the world, to the earth. For I am a king from heaven, and I have a people, and I have a kingdom, and I will gather those people into a kingdom, and I will rule with them forever and ever and ever. So much more different than the beasts. The beasts come, the beasts are fierce, and the beasts all die and are judged by the Ancient of Days. But here the Son of Man comes. He obeys. He lives. And now he is rewarded. The only one to receive this reward. The only faithful one. The only holy one. The only one that all things have been given to him. Like the better Adam. The second Adam that he is. This all happens when he ascends to heaven. And what does he do when he gets to heaven? Here's a kingdom and here's a people. The next thing that we know that Jesus does, according to the New Testament is he sits down. Okay, so what? Dan, you're getting excited about Jesus sitting down? What is so special about that? I mean, if I would have known the significance of this as a child, I could have used this verse against my father who wanted me to pull weeds in the yard all day long. I just want to sit down, Dad, and play Nintendo. But no... Sitting down is so important. Because sitting down implies one thing. The work has been finished. What you have sent me to do, I have done completely, fully, and satisfactorily. Everything that God the Father, the ancient days, has sent him, he has done. And this is what was prophesied of the Messiah to do. In Psalm 110, look at that. In Psalm 110, by the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. No other passage in the Old Testament is quoted as much as Psalm 110. Why? It's massively important and significant to understanding the work of Messiah. David writes this. Remember, David, the Davidic covenant, God promised him a kingdom and a people and a son that would rule on his throne forever. David writes, the Lord, that's Yahweh, God, says to my Lord, speaking of the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit down. Of course, this was seen in the life of David. As God gave Israel rest from her enemies for a season under David's rule and reign. But then God tells David, in even a greater way will this be fulfilled by your son who will fulfill this eternal and everlasting kingdom. What he will do, he will sit down when his work is completed. Until, does he sit down forever? No, he sits down On the throne, until when? I make your enemies your footstool. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. Now, Dan, how do you know that means that? I mean, how do you know you're not reading into that? Well, of course, I'm not reading into it. Because the apostles then quote the same verse in light of the ascension of Christ. One chapter later in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 110 
about what the Messiah would do and applies it to Christ. Look at this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore, hot, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. Verse 34. Now listen to this. Peter says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter knows exactly what just happened. He stands there amazed. Lord Jesus caught up in the clouds, goes to heaven. His mind goes to Daniel 7. His mind goes to Psalm 110. The Lord Jesus has now sat down at the right hand of the Father. Everything is his. He fulfills all the covenants, the covenant of grace before time began, the covenant of redemption. He completed what Adam could not do. Adam was forced to work, work, work. Jesus now sits down. And that is good news. He sits on a throne because he has authority. He sits on the throne of judgment knowing that. And he sits until all of his enemies are his footstool. He's still sitting, friends. He's still sitting on the right hand of the Father to this day. Why? His enemies are not yet his footstool. But one day that will be completed. And every last enemy on this earth will be defeated will be humiliated. And that's exactly what a footstool means. R.C. Sproul says a footstool was a place of disgrace, symbolizing subjugation. After a victory, leaders would humiliate their defeated enemies by stepping on their heads or necks. One day, the father says, sit down until all your enemies are your footstool. Until every last enemy is defeated. Until every last worldly kingdom is thrown down. And then the end will come. And King Jesus will come in all his glory. After subjugating every worldly power underneath his domain and rule. Which by the way, he rules now. The kingdom is not a future thing. The kingdom is now with Christ ruling and reigning from heaven through his church, spreading the gospel to the nations, calling his elect to himself. And the New Testament continues to pick up on this message. For example, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and 
Here it is. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22? Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. He's sitting down, friends, because he rules and reigns. And there is not one enemy on earth. There is not one nation, not one antichrist, not one godless politician that will ever be, uh, that will ever dominate him, that will ever usurp him, that will ever throw him off his throne, whoever will skirt the, the plan of history. They all will have to bow down at the feet of Jesus and they will be his footstool. Every last single beast on earth. Let's give you one more. This is also Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, Daniel 7 is so huge to understand the working of Messiah and the importance of the ascension. By the way, the ascension gets no love in the church. If we understood the power and the glory of the ascension, we would radically change what we think about a lot of things. We focus rightly on the death, the burial, the resurrection. That is the gospel. But that's not the whole story. That he ascended and is sitting down, waiting until every last enemy is his footstool, is the message of the church today. As we go to the nations, as we send missionaries, as we fight this war against sin and impurity and fight for righteousness and stand for God, Christ wins through it all. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Here Paul, here Paul makes an allusion to the same thing. About the importance of the resurrection, about the importance of Christ's rule, about what Jesus will do at the end. Because remember, when did Jesus receive the kingdom? At the ascension. Here it comes, in before the ancient of days. He was given a kingdom and a people. He rules and reigns from heaven now. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Now listen to this. Then at his coming... Those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. The end of what? The end of everything. The end of time. It's history and space. Then comes the end. When? When he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, after what? Destroying every rule and authority and power. Again, Paul alludes to Psalm 110, that he must sit down until his enemies are made his footstool. 
For he must reign, verse 25. He must, not that he will reign. He must reign. That's present tense with ongoing. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Again, the millennial kingdom is not a future thing. It begins now with Christ ruling and reigning from heaven. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then the end comes. But there's one more enemy to go when he comes. One last enemy to be defeated at the second coming. And this is when death dies for sure. The last enemy, Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. That's where it all began. Adam and Eve, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. But when King Jesus comes back, meaning that all earthly powers, all beasts, all worldly kingdoms have now been subjugated to his rule and reign When he returns, he will destroy his enemies by the sword in his mouth, which is the word of God. On his thighs, name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the last thing to die is death itself. For at that great white throne judgment, this is what John writes, that even death, death itself was cast into the lake of fire. And this is why in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more death. No more funerals. No more death. I can't wait. I can't wait until that day. But what do we do with all this? Like i got to wrap it up. What do we do with all this? Right? He is sitting down, friends. He's sitting down not in a place of humiliation. That was on the cross. And he rose in glory. And he ascends to heaven in all authority. He's sitting down with great power and dominion and glory. We have King Jesus as our head We have King Jesus to live every day of our lives with that knowledge motivating us and empowering our obedience. We have King Jesus that we could be faithful to take the gospel to the nations. We could send people like the Robertsons to Kenya and the Henslers to Egypt and the other Robertsons to Costa Rica and to support Heart Cry Missionary Society to the ends of the earth. Why? Because King Jesus rules and reigns and nothing will stop his gospel from going. Nothing. Nothing. This is what he's doing now. Oh, I wonder what Jesus is doing in heaven. He is sitting down until all his enemies are his footstool. And when that day comes, when the last of God's elect is saved, he will return. And every Beasts that remains will be destroyed. And all those who have rejected his gospel will also be judged at that throne and be cast alive into the lake of fire. But his people, this is next week. There's a lot more sermon to go, but that's next week. His people 
rule and reign with him. With no more death in view. No more sin in view. This is the truth that keeps us going. This is why Jesus says, go make disciples. This is the power by which I preach every Sunday. I don't preach with my authority. I preach with his. I preach as a messenger of the king and his eternal and holy word. Knowing that half of you might not even be listening. You might be sleeping or tuning out or thinking about lunch. But you know what? God will accomplish his purpose through this word no matter what you do or I do. I need to be faithful. You need to be faithful. Go share Christ with people this week. Why? He is sitting down, ruling and reigning from heaven. And he's promised that his gospel cannot fail. Don't give up. Don't give up on your lost loved ones, on your lost neighbors. Share Christ with them. This is the promise of the gospel. Go make disciples. We do that in his authority. Go baptize them in the name of the Father. Why do we? Because he, King Jesus, rules and reigns. That's why we do that. The ascension changes everything. Because it tells us what is true now and what will be true then. We don't hope for a future kingdom. and We have that kingdom now. It's an already but not yet. We have a glimpse of it now. It's true now. But it will be fully realized later in the new heavens and new earth. Where everyone will know the Lord. Let's pray. What a humbling thought, Lord. When we attempt to make ourselves to be such a great people, we attempt to elevate ourselves much more than we ought to. That's the game that beasts play. That's the game that antichrists play. We serve you today, a risen Savior, who's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And while wars persist on this earth, while the people of God continue to be persecuted, this is all a part of your plan. For every evil beast and worldly empire and evil politician and leader and ruler and dictator will all meet their doom. They'll all have to give an account while King Jesus sits waiting for that day. As the kingdom marches on, Jesus told us in the gospel the, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. Help us to live in this reality. That although it seems like we're just subjected to worldly evil, the King Jesus is sovereign and rules over all of them next to the Ancient of Days. Although we may be discouraged about the results of elections and the results of laws that are coming to pass, the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world, 
And it seems like the evil one is winning. It seems like the beast rages on and is victorious. We know that according to his sovereign plan and his goodwill, King Jesus has decided to sit down because he rules and reigns. And he's sovereign over evil beasts like Nebuchadnezzar here, even calling some of them to repentance and others to stand before him in judgment. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, believers, that there is a kingdom that marches on as the king sits on his throne. We are his subjects. We obey him. We love him. We serve him. We obey him. Whatever he's told us to do, And in this world, he's called us to preach the gospel to the nations. And that's what we will continue to do. Help us, Lord, as we minister in this church in this area. Not to make this church famous. Not to grow our numbers for prideful reasons. To build bigger buildings and have bigger budgets. No, we do it all for the glory of the risen king who rules and reigns now in obedience to him for his majesty and his glory. And Lord, find us faithful to the end. As beasts ravage us and roar and attack God's law and God's people, help us to always remember who wins And if he's sitting down, we should be at rest in him. No matter what this world can do. Though the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Thank you, God. I pray that this sermon, as we have shared the gospel, would call sinners to repentance those who have rejected your gospel, who have not believed in you in faith alone, by grace alone, that they would do so now, putting their faith in this risen Christ who rules and reigns from heaven. Call them to repentance, God. Draw them by your spirit. And for your people, encourage them. May we repent of our apathy and our laziness and live as King Jesus rules now, because you do. Help us not to be so consumed by the world that we get so discouraged and depressed and we just want to give up. To do so is to live in light that Jesus isn't ruling and reigning. Oh, Lord, this changes everything. As the apostles were motivated, encouraged, and empowered by the Holy Spirit because they saw the risen and ascended Christ, may we glimpse our eyes in that direction as well. Give us a greater love for the ascension and what that means. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing a closing hymn together. If I could help you in any way, please see me after the service. I'll be in the Welcome Center. God bless you, but let us adore him.